Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about the 11th hour Brexit deal, uh, some tensions going on between Ethiopia and Sudan. I'll get into why it's a bit more important than it may sound. That and how the relative power change between the United States and China has led to the Chinese being more assertive uh, around the world. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So a Pak-Turk friendship square has been inaugurated in Rawalpindi, Pakistan. And that's Pak for Pakistan and Turk for Turkey. So Turkey is building friendships with countries abroad. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Pakistan is a very mighty partner of all countries that they could partner up with. And... Pakistan does have nuclear weapons, so with all this talk of an Iranian nuclear device uh, that the Iranians seem to be trying to develop, maybe Turkey doesn't want to be left behind. And who better to help them build a nuclear device than Pakistan? And given that they are still under the umbrella of uh, NATO, would it be less controversial for them to build a nuclear device? Over Iran? Probably. And given the changing situation between them and the U.S., they're probably going to try to rush for this. Because once you have the bomb, you can't really stop... You can't really be stopped from making more. So we'll see where that pans out. I don't think it's specifically for the purpose of getting an atomic bomb. But that could be something that the Turks could look into later on after they've developed the friendship more. Uh, Argentina is apparently chasing off Chinese fishing boats who were illegally fishing in their water. Now, if you look on a map and look at where Argentina is, uh, and then you look at where China is, this story is weird. <laughs> this story is weird, but apparently the Chinese are all over the place. They have the largest foreign fishing fleet, like, around like 2,000 vessels, I believe. And they're just all over the world fishing in other people's waters. So I thought it was really interesting that... Because I believe... we I brought up that they were doing the same thing with Chile in a previous episode. Now, Argentina doesn't even have a coastline on the Pacific, so it seems, again, like a really weird story. But it kind of ties into what I'll talk about later on. Uh, the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, uh, that is Iraq, was hit with a missile barrage that's likely from Iran, and this was likely in retaliation for the killing of top nuclear scientists, the top Iranian nuclear scientist, Mozen Fakhrizadeh, uh, when he got assassinated. I don't think he was the one who got assassinated by dudes on, dudes on motorcycles, or was he? Was he the one that got assassinated by two Israeli dudes on a motorcycle? Some nonsense straight out of a action film? Maybe it was him. Or maybe I'm just getting my assassinations mixed up. But uh, either way, the Iranians aren't happy about that. And they're probably the ones responsible behind the, mil the missile barrage. Because we were probably the ones responsible for the death of the nuclear scientists. So tit for tat. Tensions escalate. And we'll see where this goes. Now, Iran, uh, after this, they had increased their air defenses around their key nuclear sites in anticipation of an American response. Uh, America's pretty distracted right now, so we'll see if they get a response at all. Uh, anyway, on the other side of the world, the Philippines bans flights from the UK. Now, there's this whole... Uh, controversy growing about this new strain of coronavirus in the United Kingdom 
that's being used to justify uh, harsher restrictions on things coming from the UK, uh, even though some reports indicate that it's already been in some of the places that are imposing restrictions before the UK. It was just, it was found in the UK. But it, common sense doesn't exist in 2020. So, uh, Three soldiers, three French soldiers, let me be specific, were killed in Mali by an IED. Now, if you look at where Mali is, it's a country in Africa. Uh, they are landlocked in Africa, but they didn't used to be landlocked. You see, because way back in the day, they used to be a part of the French Empire. So very, very interesting. What could those French soldiers be doing there? Definitely not maintaining influence. They're definitely maintaining influence. Uh, that's another thing that's going to play into something I'll talk about later on. Uh, they got killed by an IED. So they were either fighting terrorists, insurgents, or people that just don't want them there. Uh, probably a combination of all three. Ooh. <laughs> but I don't think this is going to make the French start a wholesale retreat from Mali. Oh my. Uh, a new unity government in Yemen has taken power, and they now aim to address a failing currency, they aim to address repairing the economy, and defeating the Houthi rebels. Now, as for the economy, uh, we'll see if they undo the lockdowns, because if they don't, then there's no repair in the economy. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if they do that, because economic recovery... And economic lockdown are two mutually exclusive paths that you can take. Like, you can't lock the economy down while you're trying to recover the economy. We can see that countries that don't lock down or have undone their lockdowns have not had economic problems or have recovered from those economic problems. And the countries that do lock down are struggling economically. Now, in America, we're kind of a mix between the two. Um, most states have opened up to some degree, and some of our more populous states have gone really, really harsh on the lockdowns. So, due to the imbalance of where people live in the country, the handful of states that have gone all in on lockdowns uh, have effectively dragged the entire nation's uh, economy down with it, because California is like 40 million people. And New York is another beefy state. Uh, still managed to get unemployment down to like somewhere under 7% though. So uh, incredible really. But we'll see where we go, especially if those states don't reopen. Because uh, it looks like they have no intention of doing so. There's, we're getting to the point where there's like riots in the streets over reopening the economy. Um, they don't want to do it, and we're kind of, how do I put it, at max potential without them? Uh, kind of? It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, but the long story short, you can't do economic recovery without undoing economic lockdown. Those are two mutually exclusive lines of thinking, and we'll see if this new unity government in Yemen uh, comes to that conclusion. Uh, as for their failing currency, uh, they're probably just going to want to either get a new one or <laughs> stop printing money. Or are they printing money? Maybe their currency is just failing anyway. Man, as for the defeating the, the Houthi rebels, we'll see where that goes because the Houthis are backed by Iran. And Iran has been pretty assertive lately. But at the very least, if their goal is defeating the Houthis, they might be able to count on Arabia and... Uh, Israel for assistance, and the U.S. to a limited degree. Again, America's pretty distracted right now. Uh, we're going to hop on uh, across the Arabian Sea to India. Uh, a couple weeks back, we talked about how the Indian farmers in the northeast of the country started a general strike, uh, which quickly spread across the entire country. About, what was it, 250 million people went on strike. And now the Indian government has agreed to meet with these farmers 
over the recent farm laws where they were trying to do a bit more of a privatization uh, type deal. And that was met with massive backlash. Uh, all of this in light of India trying for an economic recovery and in the broader light of their geopolitical conflict, conflict, contest with China. We'll go with contest because they haven't started shooting at each other yet, directly or indirectly. We'll see where Nepal goes. They're on the brink of a potential civil war with their parliament dissolved at a par particularly polarized time for them. We'll see where that goes. We're, we're, we're going to see where a lot of this goes. Okay, it's the, wait, it's the wait and see game. That's the story of 2020. Well, 2020 is almost over, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see where that goes. Uh, hopefully 2021 doesn't smack us in the face even harder. But anyway, while we're talking about attempts for an economic recovery, China's economy has recently been projected to overtake the United States economy by 2028, according to a British think tank, the CEBR, and that's the Center for Economic and Business Research. Uh, and given what I just said, about the mutually mutual exclusivity of economic recovery and growth as opposed to economic lockdown and the fact that the Chinese have reopened basically entirely and the US is only about half 75% maybe yeah it's no surprise uh, that this projection is coming out now because on the path that both countries are on well, the country that isn't locked down economically is growing, and the country that is, is still recovering. So, eh, eight years. Well, seven now. We're, we're almost at the end of 2020, I can't believe it. It feels like it's been a whole decade. The election itself has felt like a century, but I won't. you won't catch me complaining, okay? We'll just, you won't catch me complaining. The movies are coming in March. Godzilla vs. Kong comes in May. And I swear to Jesus, if we're not reopened by then, it's over. It's all over. But we're going to move on to the meat now. We're going to the meat. So, Sudan and Ethiopia have engaged in border talks, or rather negotiations, regarding the exact dimensions of their border. Now, this has come in light of an Ethiopian militia executing cross-border raids in the Abu Tior province in southern Sudan. That's southeastern Sudan. I want to specify that because something else happened in Sudan that's also in its south. But the Ethiopian militias crossed the border uh, in an attempt to take farmland, I believe. Now, Ethiopia is a very mountainous country, so usable land is probably a valuable resource, especially to the common folk. And no deal was reached after all this, but a, an agreement was made to resume talks at a later date in Ethiopia. Uh, this story will also play into something else we'll talk about later, uh, but f to kind of give you the grander picture of why it's more important, at least for the region, aside from the later topic, um, Ethiopia, back when I was talking about the rebels in the Tigray region, which is the northernmost province in Ethiopia, which is right up against the Sudanese border, and is right along the river that the Renaissance Damazon, that was causing all that political ruckus between them and Egypt, uh, I talked about how that conflict could spill out into something worse, especially if foreign powers got involved like, say, Turkey, or Iran, or Arabia, or even China, who is doing heavy investing in East Africa. I talked about how that conflict being so close to the dam could threaten the security of the dam. Now, apparent, it seems as though the Ethiopians have gotten a grip over Tigray, but this uh, border crossing uh, by the militias into Sudan could open up a new can of worms that might they might not be able to put back in the in the box and again all eyes are on that dam because something happens to it ethiopia gets no energy and they lose their well their 
advantageous position over everyone else that is on the Nile, Sudan and Egypt included, Egypt most of all. Uh, so I talked about that and the potential for it to spill out into a new type of proxy war where regional powers, and this is an increasingly regionalized world, that's the trend we're on, uh, where the regional powers would play in that sandbox and regional powers would win and become stronger in their region. I brought that up and I'll get into the other reason why this caught my attention later. Uh, but that's just for the context of why this general region is decently important. Uh, but while we're still in Sudan, uh, they deployed troops in South Darfur, which is in the country's southwest, after 15 people were killed in tribal violence, or specifically tribal violence over water resources. So, again, that dam. <laughs> again, the dam. People are killing each other over water, and while well, it's easier to purify water with electricity, which Ethiopia was going to give to Sudan uh, via the dam, because hydroelectric power. So, yeah, electricity is nice to have, but it, I brought this up because of the tensions between them and Ethiopia, and probably Sudan would really like to have to not have more problems in its border zones. Uh, Sudan is a pretty not stable, semi-stable country. Is semi-stable fair? I think it's fair. They're in a bit of a power transition, uh, a contentious power transition. But hey, that's the theme of 2020 now, isn't it? Which could also spill out into something worse on top of the crises emerging in Ethiopia. Uh, I brought up how the Tigray fighters may have just disappeared into the mountains and they'll pop up again in a couple months causing trouble. And the likely target is going to be the dam or some some area in the political sector of Ethiopia that could throw everything into disarray. But that's a story that will probably explode on us in another day. But for now, we're going to move on to this 11th hour Brexit deal. Uh, and there are some very mixed feelings about this Brexit deal. Very, very mixed feelings. Uh, the staunch Brexiteers, they feel like the government conceded on fisheries, and fisheries was a major point of contention leading up to the first Brexit referendum in the first place, uh, namely over sovereignty over British waters. Uh, I didn't see why there was negotiations even to be had British waters for British people done deal it's not like oh the sea is named after britain therefore britain owns all of it like in china where they're claiming the entirety of the south china sea but rather it's their internationally agreed upon territorial waters i didn't see where the negotiations were to be had over who got what percent of british fish I say, it's you get whatever the British say you get, and if they say you get nothing, well, you get nothing. It's a shame. It's a shame. You know, the, the, the these ain't the people we fought a revolution against, I'll tell you that. I, I don't even know these people anymore. But, <laughs> but it was a major point of contention, uh, and Brexiteers feel like the government conceded on that. And there were also mixed opinions over the value of political independence when they were still pretty heavily tied to the EU economically. And that, I believe, is a pretty super valid concern, because uh, if you're separate politically but super dependent economically, you're effectively a vassal state. Except, as a vassal state, you don't get a say in the policies of your vassal master, whereas when they were part of the EU, sure, they had to pay, sure they were, they were economically integrated with the EU, but they got a say in the political system. So there's another place of mixed opinions on the matter, uh, and one that I personally would agree with, because there's no point in political independence if you can't be independent economically either. As People use money. 
So we'll take that as you will. But another major concern regarding this was the timing of the deal and the very little time that Parliament is going to have to scrutinize the deal as it is around 2,000 pages and I believe they only had like a couple days to go over it um, so there's that then there were others who were just happy that it's finally over uh, others that were pro-Brexit I'll just clarify because the Remainers are still worried about the lack of access to the European market and their main concern is that it's going to negatively impact the British economy and that too is a pretty valid concern especially if you're going to be independent politically but not economically so the thing there is if you're dependent on the EU economically but you're not a part of the bloc now you're going to have to deal with all the restrictions that they impose on other countries as opposed to effectively free trade within the EU economic system. So dependency at a higher cost now so is what they're worried about and you can't really blame them if this is going to be the nature of the deal. But at this point only time will tell which side ends up being right on this issue. I believe in the long term, the Brexiteers are going to be right, but they're going to have some serious trade deals to negotiate in the meantime. Uh, they, Especially if they want to achieve their goal of being Singapore on the Thames. The Thames is the river that London is on. But uh, we'll, we'll see where they are in 2030. We'll just say that I think a good decade is long enough to recover from a coronavirus-induced... Well, not coronavirus, coronavirus lockdown induced economic woes combined with economic dependency on Europe, you know, as they try to wean themselves away from European economy. But there was another thing, and this isn't in my notes, I saw the other day, that there were three other countries uh, that were likely to follow, most likely to follow Britain. Uh, that would be namely chief, well, chief among them, you know, uh, chief among them being Italy. Now, Italy had expressed strong Eurosceptic sentiments where a majority of them, uh, well, not a majority, but a really strong plurality because of the way that the poll was broken down, uh, would have been on board with leaving the Euro. A, plur a strong plurality would have been on board with leaving the European Union and then a decent number would have been on board with both. So you can see that that would be a concerning issue for the European Union. And namely with how those sentiments have only grown with the way that the European central government, uh, I, they have like a commission and a parliament and something else that I forget, but the European Central Government uh, effectively sat back and did nothing during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, and Italy is not too happy about that. So it, it was stated a while back that Italy would strongly consider a Brexit-style exit from the EU if they saw that Brexit had gone well for the Brits. And it's only a matter of time before Brexit goes well for the Brits. Again, they're going to have some trade deals to negotiate in the meantime uh, to get there. But they're going to get there eventually. And once that happens, Italy's probably going to go, Oh, look, would you look at that? We don't need to be a part of the EU, so maybe we should leave. And I've laid that out. And what I saw as the future of the EU, which was a perpetual secession crisis, because one by one, in individual member states of the EU are going to see that Britain is doing well outside of the EU. And it's not like they just didn't know that Britain left because of the massive ruckus that's been made over Brexit. Everybody's going to be paying attention to Britain now and how they do. The European 
government is probably going to use every downturn that they can find in Britain to justify why people shouldn't leave the EU. And the Eurosceptic voices in Europe are going to use every upside in Britain as justification for leaving the EU themselves. And in the long term, I think that the Eurosceptics are probably going to win out on that. Because, again, it's only a matter of time before the British wean themselves off of Europe the way that they want to. They have multiple trade deals lined up. Uh, they have a trade deal with Canada. They have a trade deal with Japan. They're, I believe they're either negotiating or they have finished a trade deal with Singapore. Uh, and I believe a trade deal with the United States is on deck. That combined with Kanzuk, which would encompass Australia and New Zealand into a trade agreement as well. Um, well, I like to call it the new British Empire. But it's only a matter of time before the Brits get back on their feet. Which means it's only a matter of time before other countries in the EU start to question whether or not it's worth being in the EU. Now, some of them will have legitimate incentive to stay regardless of what happens. Uh, Germany, namely, because they have outside control over all of Europe, which is what they've always wanted. They're not going to go anywhere. Um, France, Macron is trying to take that control back. France used to be the big dog in Europe uh, back during the Cold War, but now they're not. And he's facing a wave of people that want to leave. I believe he admitted that if there was a Brexit-style referendum in France, the French would have voted to leave too, and that was back around, what was it, twenty either 2018 or around the Brexit referendum itself. And I don't imagine that pro-EU sentiments have grown in France since that time. Now, the French presidential, presidential or prime minister? Uh, the national election, who determines... Uh, who's going to be in charge of the country is in 2022. Macron's main challenger being Marine Le Pen. Le Pen is Eurosceptic, so we'll see how that turns out. He might lose. He might win. It's looking like they're neck and neck right now. Anything bad that happens to him is going to screw him. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. But uh, this is it. We're on the verge of that perpetual secession crisis. Because I don't imagine that Poland and Hungary are going to like the EU too much when the EU tried to override their veto uh, over the budget. Uh, I don't imagine Hungary is going to like the EU very much as the EU constantly slanders them. Uh, like they did when I talked about the Ninth Amendment to Hungary's constitution. They got slandered over that. They called Viktor Orban a dictator. They call the government in Poland authoritarian. I I just don't see countries taking that forever and staying as a part of the EU. I really don't. I don't see Greece constantly being left out to dry by the year by the European Union every time Turkey starts bullying them and demanding their lunch money. I don't, I, I don't see Turkey, well not Turkey, I don't see Greece taking that and going, yes, this is an institution we want to be a part of, this is an institution we can trust. I don't see them doing that. As a matter of fact, I see all of them going their own ways as we speak. Uh, Greece had to reach out to France, not the EU, to get something done about Turkey and when it came time for the EU to do something about Turkey, it was smacked down by Germany. Uh, and Turkey is only getting more assertive, and it's going to be a growing problem for Greece. Greece can't depend on the EU. Uh, Italy doesn't want migrants forever. They don't want the endless stream of migrants. The EU has mandated that they take in as many migrants as they can. So that's where Matteo Silvini comes in. And when he takes power again, and it's looking like he may be able to do that, he's probably going to push for some type of Brexit for Italy. And Italy exit. Then there's Spain, who was also hurt very badly by this coronavirus pandemic. 
and the lockdowns, I don't think they're going to take too kindly to the EU either. Uh, I think this whole crisis and the lockdowns and the virus has accelerated trends that were already in motion, and we've been seeing that throughout the entirety of the year. Um, And a lot of them are negative trends for a lot of different industries. Uh, The movie industry is on its last legs. The comic book industry is dying. Uh, But trends regarding uh, the difference and tensions between countries have also accelerated. We talked about the Cold War between India and China, and every day, it, it seems like it gets slightly bigger, slightly colder. It gets chillier in the Himalayas every day. And Pakistan's always there to make it chillier. But, ah, it seems like we're probably going to witness in our lifetimes the end of the EU. And there are going to be a lot of people who don't want to see that. And I, I'd imagine it's the people who are avid fan, well, not fans, but avid readers of European history who probably don't want Europe going back to war with one another. But on f- with the track that we're on, I see that being exactly where we head to. Now, what that means for Europe, only time will tell, especially in this age of nuclear weapons. But... I don't think the EU is going to be a long-living institution, especially with the immense pressures that are being put on it that are really out of its control at this point. I don't know. Maybe they'll maybe they'll pull off some sort of wicked victory and they start uh I don't know, a truly federalizing and they create a new national identity that is Europe instead of say German or Spanish or Italian. Uh, they've been trying. They've been trying to do that. They've also been trying to build their own army. Uh, who knows? Maybe they'll actually succeed at those projects and prove me wrong. I, I'd imagine people who want peace in Europe, uh, especially in a time when NATO is being called into question, they would like that, you know? And we'd all like peace. Now, I'll be the first to admit that war makes my job a lot easier, but we all like peace. But, that's Europe. Uh, and only time will tell how Europe goes. But now, we're gonna, we're gonna get to China in just a bit. And then I'll go into the larger theme that I've noticed in gathering information for today's episode. So stay tuned. Alright, we're back. And now we're gonna talk about good old China. Now... We've been covering uh, a little bit about we've been covering a little bit of China's trade war with Australia. Now, we've been covering it in light of how it's pushing Australia to India's side in the Cold War, the real Cold War, uh, and how it's kind of an early line in the sand that's being drawn, and that's probably going to play out over the course of the next couple decades, if not longer, but. We'll see about the longer part, but definitely the next few decades. Uh, But China, their restrictions on Australia have backfired. And we'll get into that. Uh, Well, right now, China has previously restricted Australian coal imports. Uh, Now, due to the countries, and I'm talking about China, due to the country's heavy dependence on coal energy... This has caused mass restrictions on energy consumption in cities across China. Uh, there were reports of people having to walk up 30 flights of stairs to get to work. I'd imagine there were a lot of people quitting that day. 30 flights, goodness. Well, at least at least he got a leg workout, but <laughs> who wants to go to work after that? But, I mean, geez, 30 flights of stairs, goodness. I'm going to move on, I'm going to move on. Uh, There were reports of people going up 30 flights of stairs to get to work. There was usage of air conditioning and heating were limited to use only when extreme temperatures set in. And for those of you uh, in, say, America or Europe wondering about the whole air conditioning part, especially during winter... 
Uh, China encompasses many geographic zones. Uh, there's the. It's very frigid in the north, like in Manchuria and Tibet. Tibet being in the southwest of the country, and it's very hot. In the north and northwest, which would be Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang, uh, though especially the Gobi Desert, which is like, oh, which is also to the northwest of the country. Xinjiang is within the Gobi Desert, but when you go south, uh, it's also it gets tropical and well, really hot because you get closer to the equator. So there's lots of different geographic zones within China. Uh, that would justify using, well, air conditioning during December. So that's to clear up the confusion. But the main, the main part of the story is that they're being restricted on their usages of those. Because there's a billion and a half people in China. And, well, if you're having energy problems, you don't want those billion and a half people using energy. Now, a half of those people don't even have access to energy. We're not going to talk about that. but Because that still leaves, what? What is that? What? 750 billion people? Well, not billion. Million. There we go. 750 million people that do have access to electricity. Uh, which is double the population of the United States. Uh, and that's a lot of energy. So, energy restrictions were imposed. And kind of... How do I... What was I... How do I put this? It's kind of eh, exactly what they said would happen to the United States when we started a trade war against China, but now China started a trade war against Australia and they're getting smacked with their own restrictions. But this is most likely going to be a short-term problem because China does have lots of coal. Uh, it has a lot, a lot of coal that it can use. Uh, domestic coal that it doesn't need to go overseas to get and it's probably gonna start mining that coal uh, it's already been expanding their coal power plants uh, although that was probably due to Australian coal imports but now they're probably gonna open up their own domestic supply will expand domestic supply and they're gonna become more self-sufficient now I believe it was way back in the first episode that I talked about China rushing for uh, electric vehicles because electric vehicles don't necessarily need oil to run which means you can use coal power so China being self-sufficient in energy production particularly if they're using coal to do it uh, probably gonna accelerate their accelerate their self-sufficiency their goals of self-sufficiency I know Xi Jinping expressed a desire for like a separate a separation of their domestic and uh, foreign dependencies where he wanted a stronger emphasis on domestic dependency so basically he wanted self-sufficiency now we're, we're gonna ignore that people said America was silly for wanting this but they those same people now believe China to be uh, a big brain player on the stage for wanting the same thing now but uh anyway they're, they're going to produce their own energy coal-wise, and they're probably going to use Belt and Road to get oil from the Middle East. Uh, we'll see where that goes, because Iran would have to sign on. Either Iran or Azerbaijan. I believe Azerbaijan could. Uh, they could. Maybe Turkey as well, and then they could bypass Iran entirely to get to the Middle East. But anyway, they're building a new capital, so... Every ounce of energy that they can not have to depend on foreigners for uh, makes the capital look better. Or at least it will when their new capital will, is done. But I see this as a major event with regard to China geopolitically. Because it's crisis that sparks change. And China's probably going to use this change to spark a domestic... To really get going on its domestic dependency... Uh, goals because you know you can't be it, it doesn't look good uh, when you get smacked in the face by a country with less people than you and a smaller economy than you uh, in America we went through kind of a similar thing with the oil embargo back in the 70s not a good look when you're trying to be the uh, superpower 
But anyway, that's China. And if they're less dependent on foreign energy, that'll give them stronger leverage in their geopolitical struggle, especially if Australia is going to be on the other side of that struggle with India. So small event right now, big implications later. That is the story of the Cold War 2.0. Now we're going to move on to Turkey. Now, the defense minister in Turkey has recently taken a visit to Libya, and he's gone there to discuss military cooperation between Turkey and Libya. He, now, he also went there to inspect Turkey's mercenaries that are stationed in Libya. Uh, Turkey has really been reinventing the rules of warfare that it abides by. Uh, and the fact that they're openly admitting to having mercenaries in Libya uh, just says volumes, especially with how they sent mercenaries to fight in Azerbaijan when Azerbaijan was at war with Armenia. Uh, they, It's kind of like the Cossacks that the Russians had back in the day, or I guess Turkey's equivalent would be the Janissaries. But Turkey's... Uh, more reliant on these mercenaries than their own military, and they probably stole the idea from the Russians who sent in their little green men during the Ukraine-Donbass uprisings. Uprising. The uprising in eastern Ukraine, where the Russians sent in troops, said that they weren't Russian troops, but they were really Russian troops. So Turkey's effectively taking that and going, those aren't ours, those are just mercenaries that we paid for. But the broader theme here, uh, well, actually, I'll finish the story, and then I'll get into the broader theme here. Uh, Turkey is, as we know, a steadfast supporter of the Libyan government in Libya's civil war. Now, General Hafdar, he's the leader of the rebels, he has stated that he and his forces were ready to, quote, drive out the occupier by faith, will, and weapons, but it Every day it looks increasingly like he's going to lose this civil war. Now, maybe he's going to pull a Mao Zedong and win after a long march through the desert. I don't think he's going to do that with foreign intervention uh, on on behalf of the other side. Maybe he gets beef. Maybe he gets some beefed up weapons from, say, France or maybe America. But it's looking like he's on the losing side right now. And the Turks are going to get what they want out of Libya. And we discussed part of what they wanted back in the first episode, way back. And now we'll get into the broader, the broader picture here. And that is Turkey and Libya's alliance. So Turkey and Libya, I brought up in the first episode, they wanted to use their economic exclusive zones to basically overlap with one another and cut off everyone else from the eastern Mediterranean, which would allow them free reign over the eastern Med, because you, you're not allowed to go through other people's exclusive economic zone, and so basically they're trying to use international law to their advantage when it works for them, and then they blatantly ignore it when it doesn't. I see more of that from more countries moving forward. But... Uh, I also brought up the strategic implications of Turkey having a strong ally in Libya, especially if that ally isn't really strong because it's weakened by civil war, which would mean you would maybe need some uh, Turkish peacekeepers in your country, you know, just a couple thousand at any moment. And I brought up how that could potentially compromise uh, Egypt. Egypt's main, what, peer power in the region. Uh, Egypt having been formerly a Ottoman territory, but now you could see the potential for Turkey to conquer Egypt. I mean, if they tried to conquer Egypt from the east, they would have to cross the Suez Canal, which is a, uh, a whole problem. That's a tragedy waiting to happen. But if they came in from the west through Libya, who has a land border with Egypt, that would change the equation. Suddenly, the Turks would be fighting fair and square 
against Egypt in open, wide open, flat desert warfare using drone kamikaze swarms, lasers, and mercenaries. So when I said it was a fair fight, it wouldn't really be a fair fight because the Turks would just send in mercenaries to dismantle the Egyptian military and and infiltrate them from within. So Turkey's playing dirty is what I'm saying. And every advantage they get, they're going to use. And an ally in Libya, who's too weak to resist Turkish demands, isn't going to be taken very nicely by Egypt, who is, I believe, involved to a limited degree in the Libyan civil war. But it seems like it's not quite enough to stop the, the government that is allied with Turkey from winning the war. So... We'll see where that goes, and would if I had to guess, it would probably be the biggest challenge for this resurgent Turkey to overcome uh, on its path to a new Ottoman Empire. But if they succeeded, uh, their position, well, their path to empirehood would basically be guaranteed at that point, because they would control a hundred million people living in Egypt. That's a strong internal market. They would. Uh, and they'd all be of the same faith, so it'd be relatively easy to keep them under control if you appeal to faith. Uh, they would also have control of the Suez, which is uh, 18 trillion USD worth of trade goes through there, which a 1% tax on that is 180 billion, and that's a fat increase on Turkish economy, uh, on top of having an, a market for them to dump their manufactured goods onto which would further boost their economy. Uh, not to mention the breadbasket that is Egypt. Now, they would have to deal with the Renaissance Dam at some point if they were going for the breadbasket approach, but Turkey would have the capability with the kamikaze drone swarms to sabotage that dam, enough to where the water would break it instead of a weapon. But that's in the future, whenever that showdown happens. But it's things like this, this little, this little event right here, where the Turkish defense minister is beefing up his relations with the country in question, which is Libya, that would enable all of this to happen. It's little things like this that play into the really big picture, which is why I try not to overlook things that I don't care about, uh, and there are a decent number of those stories. Uh, the one at the top of the list for me is the Navalny poisoning. I, I haven't even I haven't even talked about Navalny. He's being hyped up in the news, but I, I, I really, really don't want to do that. <laughs> but every little thing ha- counts. Every little thing counts. And while we're talking about grander themes, we're going to get into the grand theme I noticed gathering information for today's episode. And that is the almost intentional failure of diplomacy uh, around the world. You have Sudan and Ethiopia. They talked and agreed to nothing. You have both sides of the Libyan civil war who were talking and have agreed to nothing more than an election which they're probably going to fight over when it's done. Uh, I believe that election is coming up, if not, I'm not mistaken. Either that or it was going to take place in a different year entirely, and I'm not doing my job, but um, I'll look into it. But you have the fighters in Libya, you have Armenia and Azerbaijan in the Caucasus, not necessarily a failure of diplomacy on their part, although you could argue that, but rather the failure of diplomacy of everyone who else outside of the Caucasus who were trying to end it, like France and Russia. Well, Russia was the only one who ultimately succeeded when they got... Because the deal was signed before the peacekeepers went in, so there was that. So Russia succeeded, but Turkey, France, America was nowhere to be found. France was the one trying the hardest to come to some sort of diplomatic deal, uh, they were promptly ignored. Uh, Turkey didn't attempt to make peace at all. Uh, but when peace seemed inevitable, they tried to get in on the talks and be, you know, 
at the table and they were promptly denied by the Russians and the Azerbaijanis who who then let the Russians send in quote-unquote peacekeepers um so failure of diplomacy there failure which is failure of diplomacy in the Caucasus you have a failure of diplomacy between India and Pakistan where they say they're not going to antagonize one another and then they start crossing the border you have the failure of diplomacy between India and China who also say that they're not going to antagonize one another and then they proceed to tie nooses around each other's necks you have a failure of diplomacy on the Brexit negotiations where uh, it took four years to come to a last minute deal like Brexit is done in three days uh, three days is it three days New Year's on Friday, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, three days. Because that would be Thursday, the 31st. Yes. Okay, okay. Brexit is over on Friday. Okay, well, we'll just say that. So, the failure of diplomacy there, where they've been, quote-unquote, negotiating for four years, and it took now to get a last-minute deal that nobody's going to be happy with. Failure of diplomacy there. You have. It it seems almost intentional, though, when you look at it. Sudan and Ethiopia have no reason to agree to a border that disadvantages themselves. So I don't expect them to come to an agreement that they're actually going to act upon. Uh, Libya, they're they're in a civil war. I don't expect them to come to an agreement. Until one of them wins and says to the other, shut up. <laughs> That's the agreement. But then you have the Caucasus, and I just laid out that France couldn't do anything. Turkey didn't even try. Uh, America was nowhere to be found. And Russia tried, succeeded, and then solidified their success by sending in troops. Uh, and Iran was nowhere to be found on the issue either. You have... then, And there was Brexit. It seems intentional. This failure of diplomacy. And I can't help but feel that we're going to see more of this moving forward as well. Uh, into this, whatever we're going to call the new era. Maybe it's the new age of imperialism. Uh, it's definitely looking that way. Uh, nothing... Not like an official empire, but rather spheres of influence, and that's how it starts. And then you have direct uh, slash indirect rule, which is the indirect being the British model, direct being the model of everyone else except for the Dutch. But um, you have these failures of diplomacy, and we can see that those can be very dangerous. Uh, just looking at the Caucasus and this and the Libyan civil war where failure of diplomacy led to people dying and nothing was able to stop it except physical occupation of the warring powers and I'd imagine that if it was anybody other than Russia there wouldn't have been a peace at this point at all um, you have Brexit and I can't stress this enough it took four years to come to a rudimentary agreement on where they stood on trade terms like four years and the entire time you had the EU trying with good reason to screw over the British in the trade negotiation and why wouldn't they they don't want Britain to do well outside of the EU because that would just spark the perpetual secession crisis that they're now going to go through whenever Britain gets around to the recovery. And, I don't know, it seems like this intentional failure of diplomacy is just going to get us to this really, really bad place one day. And it's fun in games now, and it might not be so much fun in the future when the countries in question are a lot stronger and a lot more militarized. 
We saw what failures of diplomacy got with World War One. Uh, I'd imagine nobody wants more of that, but people have no interest in war, but war is interested in you. Now that's a quote from George Friedman. But now we're going to get on to the second thing uh, that I've noticed, and that is the return of colonialism, or maybe just the realization that it never really ended. Uh, I talked about France and Mali uh, and how they had troops in the country, uh, not quite sure what they were doing, but they're there. And Mali being a f- Mali is a landlocked country and the former territory of the French Empire. So very interesting that French troops in pe- are in this country in peculiar. That's a major alarm bell. I saw another story. I don't think I brought it up on one of the podcasts, but I saw French uh, were sending aid or a delegation to Lebanon in wake of the Lebanon explosion in Beirut. Uh, we all we all saw the video of that explosion. What looked like an atomic bomb had gone off in the city. The French had sent a delegation there, and were they were actively negotiating, sending in peacekeepers because Leba- Lebanon is in a civil war right now. Uh, mo- a lot of people don't know that, and it's a really messy civil war that's been going on for decades now. But they're in civil war, and there was active negotiations over the French sending in troops to help with the situation. Lebanon was also a former French colony, so the French are maintaining not just a presence, but a strong presence in their former colonial sphere. Uh, A bit of not quite indirect rule, but spheres of influence. We're in the spheres of influence phase right now. And we'll see who makes the move to indirect rule first. I'd imagine Turkey's going to be straight up. I'd imagine Turkey's going to get there first. Oh, goodness, that scared me. My, I just had an alarm go off. <laughs> but um, I think Turkey's going to be the first to get to the indirect rule phase. Uh, and it's probably going to be in Libya, who won't be able to deny the Turks what they want, especially right after, right on the heels of a civil war, whenever the war ends. And Turkey's probably also going to be the first to get to the direct rule phase uh, when they start exerting more influence over the Middle East. Uh, or maybe it's going to be Russia. I think Russia's in the direct rule phase. They're already there. They're in the Caucasus. so And they are having insurgency in eastern Ukraine. Russia's already in the direct rule phase, so I guess Russia's already run the way, the race uh, as they expand back out to the former em- borders of their empire. Uh, then there was Portugal. I brought up Portugal in the last episode, uh, and they were in Mozambique, helping Mozambique with the insurgency that spawned. Uh, and Mozambique was a former Portuguese colony, so even Portugal is in on the take with maintaining strengthened ties in their former colonial sphere. And I, as this era that we've gotten to know comes to an end, this era where the independence and sovereignty of countries is recognized uh, universally, and nobody does anything to challenge that, uh, this era where conflicts are settled uh, with words, rather than guns and outright occupation, this era where empires are outlawed and a superpower rules the waves and forces everybody to play nice, this era coming to an end is going to usher in a return to what was once normal. That is the age of empires and imperialism, where one group of people would conquer another group of people And that was okay. That was okay. As a matter of fact, that was the norm. If you weren't an empire, you were a nobody on the international stage. If you didn't expand into empire, somebody else would, and you get screwed. That's the era that we haven't had to grow up in. But that's the era that we're going to be returning to 
especially as the superpower that once maintained global peace uh, is retreating back to its shores uh, to lick its own wounds uh, and kind of at a time when it wouldn't have been able to force everybody to play nice anyway because there's China and Russia. Uh, you can't really force those two to play nice. So this perfect storm of countries having the ability to challenge the status quo combined with the country that held the status quo uh, no longer caring about the status quo. It's this wombo combo that's going to bring this era to an end. Now, I don't know what specifically will be the moment that we recognize that it's over or maybe if there's a specific moment at all that we recognize it or maybe it just slowly fades into memory. I personally think it's going to be some sort of major war between the major powers that's going to send one country on the path to empire. Uh, similarly to the wars of the 1700s and 1800s. But uh, this return to colonialism uh, is probably going to be quiet at first. And that's what it seems. You even have China ex exerting influence in East Africa for resources, similar to what the Europeans did. And, and I just... Then there's Britain and Kanzuk, I like to call the New British Empire. They're, they've maintained a whole commonwealth with all their former colonial subjects. Uh, well, a decent number of them anyway. So, I guess really it's the realization that colonialism never really ended. Because all these countries have influence in their former colonies. That they're not going to give up. Unless it's taken from them, but we're in, we've been in an era where no one was going to take it from you. Now we're entering an era where countries will. So who's going to walk away the big winner? I think we'll find out in the next major war, be it a Napoleonic-style war, where there's just a certain number of countries at war at any given moment, and it goes on for two decades... Or if it's a World War One style thing where it's trench, it's a meat grinder and the country with the stronger economy wins in the end. Or if it's a World War Two type thing where the country that's able to inflict more damage on the other guy, the other guy's industry specifically, uh, wins. We don't know. And maybe it's going to be something fundamentally different that we can't even fathom because the weapons are different. Uh, and the ways in which the war is going to be fought in different theaters is going to be way different. I mean, if there's a war where you have Russia fighting in Europe and Turkey using lasers and kamikaze drones in the Middle East, that's two separate wars. Even if it's a part of the same war, that's two separate ways in which you're going to have to fight. And I, I'm not saying that's going to be some sort of major war between Turkey and Russia specifically, although I do see their rivalry being rekindled, but rather this there's going to be a major conflict at some point, uh, and it's probably going to happen this century. We've seen wars break out between other countries, but not major powers, but I think the major powers aren't off the table anymore. I think, I think they're not off the table. Uh, I'll close that thought as we end the episode in just a moment all right we're back i'm gonna close things up you know when i was looking at my notes for this episode i was not expecting to even be able to reach my goal of an hour long episode but i guess i've underestimated my abilities as a blabbermouth and it's strange because i i'm able to talk forever uh on specific subjects and then when I listen to myself in the recording, it's just, it's, <laughs> it's always a jarring experience listening to the sound of your own voice when you're not talking. But uh, that aside, uh, we've looked at quite a bit, really. Uh, we've managed to go over uh, some of the major, some of the major things that could blow up later on. Uh, Libya, Sudan, 
uh, we covered China and their the backlash. Well, not the backlash, but the backfiring of their trade restrictions with Australia. And these are all going to have long-term implications. That's going to probably end up in one of these podcast episodes one of these days. But, um, yeah. And, like, uh, I was joking before when I said that war makes my job a lot easier. But if there was a war, it would probably eat up the entire podcast. Especially, like, a major war. And a major war being a country where the major powers are fighting. One, two or more of them anyway. Yeah. But uh, we'll we'll see when we get there. We we hopefully we have a couple more decades of peace. But it's looking like the twenty twenties are going to be when it all unravels. Uh, namely the demographic crunch and the economic pressures that's going to put on nations. But we'll see that we'll get there when we get there, and we'll see how that goes. But. That being said, that is all I have for today. Now, I hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And if there's anything we can learn from these weekly installments where I sit in my garage and tell you about the world, it's that that world is changing, folks. And we're going to have fun watching it together. I've been your host, Haishan Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.